This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become, uh, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the, the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum <laughs> yeah, uh, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Thank you, uh, Daniel. Um, nothing like being called attention by just someone reading the Bible. No introduction, just straight off the bat. Um, great. So let me just set my timer so I know when to take the rice off. <laughs> Sorry. <there we> go. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I, was, I just had a great time today in worship. Um, I'm just very excited. Uh, so I spend the week looking at this sermon and reading the gospel, and sometimes it's not until you're forced to really look at the gospel that you remember how wonderful Jesus is. It's so easy to just gloss over the Bible, but when you have to give a sermon, you really have to read it, and you think, oh, God is just such a good God, and he's so kind, and he's so generous, and he's so wanting to bless us with his love and with his spirit. So uh, today we're looking at the wedding, wedding in, in Cana, or Cana, um, and uh, Jesus turns water into wine, um, and, and if you're reading from the beginning of John, um, it's sometimes it, you might think it's a slightly odd, odd change of tack. Um, the beginning of John is pretty, pretty dense theology, then you get to John the Baptist proclaiming Christ's coming, talking about um, the Lamb of God, and then you've got Jesus calling his disciples, and then suddenly you're at a wedding, and Jesus is having a tiff with his mum, and then makes some wine out of water, and, and you may think, have I missed a few pages, or what's going on here? Um, but when you're reading the Gospels, when you're reading the Bible, um, everything is there to show us who Jesus is, how wonderful he is what his heart is toward his people. And John tells us in his gospel why he writes these things down. So John chapter 20 says this, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Lord, we pray that today you would show us afresh how wonderful you are. 
Lord, you would show us how much you give us as we come to you and as we accept freely um, of your gift of eternal life, Lord. So we pray that you would change our hearts, Lord, and our minds today in the way that we think of you and the way that we live for you. In your name, amen. Um, So I just want to start this by giving you a few seconds to think of a time recently where you were most embarrassed. Um, so just, just think in your mind, what jumps to your mind? Could be some teenage trauma. Trauma, can't speak either. Um, have you got it in your mind? How are you feeling about that? Are you still feeling embarrassed? <laughs> Lucy Blower's got a face on, so we'll talk to her afterwards. Um, <laughs> but uh, I want to tell you about a time, very recently actually, I was on holiday uh, just last week. And we were staying at a, a lovely um, house that someone had let a group of us stay there for free. They were um, very nice uh, Christian people. And they'd come to the end of the holiday, we were in there three or four days, and uh, they got a tennis court. They were those kinds of people. And um, Ethan and I were playing, and I'm not really a sportsman. I enjoy playing sports, but I lack the finesse of really anyone who plays sports. Um, and uh, he played me a shot I missed, I overcommitted, I stumbled onto the net. I thought, this isn't as supportive as it should be. And I heard a popping sound, and I thought, oh, this could be average or it could be bad. And I looked across, and the steel pillar had fallen over. Oh, no, that's bad, yeah. Um, And usually when that happens, I'm under 10, and my dad tells me off, and then goes and deals with the consequences. I looked at Ethan, and I said, I'm just going to have to deal with this, aren't I? Because you're not going to do it. I mean, you're just a friend. Um, So I went to to the main house that overlooks the tennis court, and there are doors the size of my entire house. And then Knocker could crush me if it fell off. And uh, I knock on the door, and Jane, the lovely lady, comes out, and I say, listen. Uh, She said, oh, um, you know what's wrong? Have you lost a ball? And I said, I mean, I'd already lost two balls um, in that session. But I said, no, no, Jane, it's slightly worse than that. I've actually broken your tennis court. And she said, oh, what happened? And so I told her, and uh, she said, well, not to worry. We'll get the man in. He'll fix it up. And then she comes over with me to the tennis court, and we have a little chat with Ethan. And she says, uh, I mean, can we continue playing? We, we, you need to play tennis. Let's, let's, let's go. And, and as we were talking, I thought, How, what's happened here? I should feel bad. I've just caused hundreds of pounds worth of damage to your house, and you're excited for getting new posts. And your main concern is that I still play tennis. It was unbelievable. I've, I've never experienced forgiveness like that in my life when I've broken something before. Um, <laughs> just to say, just take note, everyone, when I do break something in your house, this is your example. Because um, it will happen if you invite me around. Um, but I, I was just amazed because I didn't feel embarrassed because she had taken all my embarrassment away. She said, no, 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 don't worry at all. I'll get the man and we'll fix it all up. Can you still play tennis? And I just thought, this is amazing mercy and generosity from this lady that I don't even know. Um, and I want us to bear that in mind. I'll come back, I'll circle, it's not just a story to keep you warmed up, but we'll circle back to that later, so keep it in mind. Because today we're looking at Jesus, who happens to be a very generous man. Um, and we're looking at a story where he, he loves generously for no reason other than he is a wonderful, wonderful God. And... Um, When we read the Bible, you know, we should know that Jesus gives to us, not out of an obligation, not out of a duty, but out of a love. There are no hidden charges, there are no hidden expectations. He just wants us to know that he is our Savior and our Lord. So, um, there should be youth taking notes. They're taking notes because I've promised them a prize. Um, And so, first point for those taking notes, um, the wine has run out. This is the problem in the story. Um, Now, I wonder, um, has anyone ever used Christianity against you? And and what I mean is, uh, you're in a situation and someone says, oh, yeah, 
Joe, he's a, he's a nice guy, he's a Christian, he serves Jesus, he can help us out. And, and they come to you like, Joe, you're a Christian, uh, do you mind doing this for me? And you think, you've kind of just leveraged Christianity against me because now, now I look like I'm giving Jesus a black eye if I don't help you out. And you're in a little bit of an awkward situation, you're not really sure how to tell someone they're taking advantage of you. So because I'm a weak person, I say, yes, yes, I'll help you out, even though it'll take me five days. Um, but when we read the Bible and we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus is not a weak person. Right? He's not someone that people can leverage his reputation against him. Jesus was anything but weak. He was generous, yes, he was loving, he was meek, he was humble, but he knew who he was and he knew what he needed to do and he knew who he was living for. And so the wedding in Cana, um, the, the wine runs out and this is not a case where you can nip down to Tesco and get a few more bottles. One, because there wasn't Tesco nearby. Um, and two, because um, this wedding would have lasted for four or five days. It wasn't a case of running out of the last five bottles and people saying, well, I'll have an elderflower to finish off. It was a case of what are we going to do for the next two days because there's nothing left to drink. Um, so this was a time of real embarrassment for the bridegroom. And Jesus' mother, Mary, feels this, this pain. She says, Jesus, the wine's run out. You know, you can do something about it. And... Uh, and, and it's not because Mary is expecting a miracle, right? Because this is the first uh, miracle that we read of. Um, but she, again, she knows Jesus. This is her elder son. She knows his character. She knows um, the kind of person he is. She knows that he's generous. And, you know, maybe just maybe he can find a way to help this guy out. So knowing that, that the response we see in verse 4 is, is, is curious. Jesus says this, woman, why do you involve me? This is no weak as water Christian uh, and he goes on, my hour has not yet come. And it's a bit of a puzzling reaction. At first, when you read that, <clears throat> you may read a little bit of a tone into it, and you may think, oh, is Jesus being rude here? What's going on? Um, and what does he mean, his hour has not yet come? But firstly, Jesus is not a rude person. The word that he uses here um, that's translated as woman is the same word that he uses when he calls to Mary from the cross. And when he says, mother, woman, this man will look after you for the rest of your life when he's pointing to his disciples. So this is not, um, a, he's not deriding his mum here. He's not saying, woman, leave me alone. He's, he's just talking to her, and that's unfortunately the way it's translated. We read a bit into that sometimes. Um, so he's not rude, but he is definite. Okay, Jesus is not a performing monkey. He's not a butler. And this, at the face of it, this isn't Jesus' problem. He came for one purpose, to draw people to himself and to save humanity from the result of our sin. And that, of course, is why he speaks of his hour, why he speaks of the cross, where his blood will be shed, where he'll make a way for us to know him without limit or boundary. Jesus' mind is fixed, and he won't be drawn off course. But then the question we ask is, well, he's at a wedding. Why is, he, why is his mind over there? Can't he just chill out for a bit? Why is he always thinking of the cross? Why has he gone there? Well, it becomes uh, clear when we realize the significance that wine has in the Bible. When we read the Bible, when we read the Old Testament and the New, um, we see that wine is actually a picture. Um, it's something that points forward to a new creation, to a time where God will make um, the, the land whole again, where he'll bring his people back to himself, where there'll be perfection and joy. In Psalm 104, David uses this image of wine as a celebration of God's goodness. In Hosea, um, he speaks of a time where there'll be vineyards and grain and wine and oil overflowing. In Isaiah, again, this image, this powerful image of, of vineyards and wine is used um, to look to a time where God comes back and he makes everything well and he reclaims his people and he heals the earth. 
And so Jesus knows what wine means. He knows what it points to. He knows that this wedding is a picture of the wedding to come, the time what we look to when we're with Christ in eternity, when we join with our bridegroom, when we feast for eternity in his goodness. And Jesus knows that he is the answer to this new age. He is the one that will bring all of this through by the shedding of his blood. Jesus is clear on his mission. He's looking ahead to that time where he saves his people and then fellowships with them forever. That is his overriding concern. To bring people into the paradise flowing with wine where joy is abundant, when pain and suffering are removed, where there is no more shame. He's looking to that time where there is an abundance of life through him. And his reply tells him, tells us that he's looking to that time where he sheds his blood. That blood that we remember by taking bread and wine at communion. To put it simply, Jesus is well aware that the wine has run out. But not just at this wedding. It's not just this bridegroom that's caught in shame. It's everyone. We are caught, they were caught in shame. We were caught without an answer to our problem. The answer of separation, the answer of shame, of guilt, of embarrassment. And he knows that they needed his wine. He knows that we need his blood and his sacrifice to be made whole. He knows what needs to be done. So back to the passage. And Mary continues, and this is is wonderful, because uh, when you meet people that know Christ, they they know Christ. They don't just follow a list of of, of commands, and they say, oh, what would Jesus do? Here's a flowchart. They know his character, and Mary knows the character of his son. So he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Verse five, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She walks in faith because she knows the character of her son. And that's an example to us. We should walk in faith because we know the character of our God. So she acts in faith and he responds in generosity. With his mission in mind, this miracle is the start of his story of a generous love to a people that need him. So on to our second point again for the note takers. (laughs) From the inside out. This is the solution. This is where we see how Jesus fixes our problem. Now, I'm just going to grab my water. But uh, while I'm grabbing my water, many of you will know that I have an interesting face. You think, how did that happen? What went wrong in the womb? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, But what you may not know is that, um, aside from its curious appearance, um, whenever I eat something, my face will smell of that about an hour or so after my Philip is making a little, little grim face there. And it's not my fault. Uh, it's not because I rub my food all over my face while I'm eating it. It's not because I wasn't brought up with good table manners. Um, it's, I don't know why. I don't know why. It's, but, but my pores seep with the flavor of my meals. And, um, you know, could, <laughs> I'll have lunch. I'll rub it. Yeah. Oh, it's cheddar. Oh, it's a vintage. It's barbershop. It's Sainsbury's. Um, and it just, cheese is particularly bad. I had toast this morning. I smelled like butter for three hours. And it's not, <laughs> it's not because I don't wash. I rubbed the L'Oreal on my face as I was showering. And uh, 20 minutes later, I smelled butter again. Um, no amount of washing helps the fact that my face exudes oils, that smell of my food. Um, the more I wash off, the more creeps out. It's just the way the Lord made me. Now, in this passage, uh, we come across some stone jars. Um, And that's because um, in the ancient Jewish tradition, um, they loved to wash. 
And that stems from the fact that in Exodus, when God was giving the law to Moses, um, God uh, gives laws to set his people apart from the neighboring, um, the neighboring uh, people. There we go. Um, and it's not because these laws make his people holy. It's these laws show that his people are set apart because they follow a God that is holy. They follow a God that is set apart, and so they mirror that in the way that they live. But they never earn their holiness through these laws because God has always been the one that said, I'm your provider. I am the one that brings you holiness. I'm the one that brings you into this land. So the laws are there to remind them that they follow a holy God, and so they too should be holy. And uh, some of those laws pertain to washing. So um, in Exodus, God says the priest, so anyone who's a priest needs to wash their hands and feet before they go into the temple. Okay, so they need to, um, symbolically, they cleanse themselves before they go into the presence of the holy God. Other laws, like if something died in their cook pot, a lizard or something, um, then they would actually have to break that pot and they couldn't use it because it was, it was defiled by death. So there are these specific laws that God gives to say you're a holy people, you're set apart. And there are particular times where they wash um, to be clean in, in, in reminder that they've been set apart. Um, but over time, people added to these laws. And it's not just a problem that the ancient Jews had. We always do this as well. Um, Jesus says, I'm enough. And I think, yes, but I haven't been to prayer meeting in three months. So I'm probably not very good. So I need to do it a little bit more so that I can be back in your good books. We love adding to what Jesus has already told us. We love adding to what God has already done because it makes us feel better. And over time, they'd added um, to these laws. So for example, now everyone who goes to the temple has to wash their hands and feet. But before it was just the priest. But I mean, it makes sense if the priests do it. Well, why doesn't everyone now do it? But it's, a, it's additional to what God had said. Okay, so there are these um, jars there, um, not because they're an untidy household, but because they would wash themselves when they came in to make themselves ceremonially clean. Um, and that was just part of their culture. Matthew um, refers to it as the tradition of the elders in his gospel. So, um, they weren't content in what God had done. They added to it, just like we do, even now. We struggle to take Christ at his word. Um, but Jesus, Jesus does something wonderful. Jesus points to these jars, to the servants. He says, servants, go to those jars, fill them with water. And these are big jars. They're out this big, four, three or four, I don't know if that's three or four foot. I'm imagining that is. Um, and, and yay wide, again, I have no idea how big this is, um, but I'm assuming it's a good illustration. Um, and between these six jars, um, it would hold between five and 750 liters of water. So if you bottle that water up, that becomes 625 to, nine, to 940 bottles of water, 750 milliliter bottles, according to the Tesco standard. Um, so, so that gives you an idea of how much water there is, all right? And when it gets into, turned into wine, how much wine there is. The Israelites had them there, so they had a continual supply of clean water to clean themselves. Right, so what? Who cares? Well, what does Jesus do? He gets the servants to fill them with water and take them to the masters of the banquet. And the master of the banquet draws from these ceremonial cleansing jars and he finds that he's drinking wine. And not just any old wine, no, this is the best wine. The best wine, the master of the banquet says, well, why have we saved this to last? Usually the worst stuff is brought out now, but this is, this is better than anything that has come before it. And there's an abundance of it. Huge amount of the best wine has been brought out because Jesus has provided. Now, as people who are reading this, knowing the end of the gospel, we start to see what's going on. 
Remember what we said about wine in our first point? This is a sign, a picture of the perfection of God, where he sweeps away sin, where he brings in perfection. Wine is the thing that Jesus commands us to drink when we remember his sacrifice that did what? Swept away our brokenness and brought in his perfection. The sacrifice that didn't give us a, 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 a cleaning that we would need to repeat in a week's time, it was a sacrifice that cleansed us once and for all, that brought us from someone who deserved damnation to someone who is welcome in the courts of the King of Heaven because we have been made pure and perfect. The consequences of our sin have been washed away. No longer does sin ooze out of us like butter or cheese from my face. It just doesn't happen because Christ has changed our hearts, because Christ has made us new. He's redeemed us once and for all to people that are now fresh and fragrant smelling people before the King of Kings. So we don't walk into the presence of God. We don't walk into church and think, oh, am I clean? We might think that, but we shouldn't because Christ has cleansed us. Christ has made us clean once and for all. He's fixed the issue at the source. He's cleaned and remade us. The spirit lives within us. The ceremonial washing jars that held the plain old water have been transformed into wine. The power of God is with us. The purpose of Jesus' mission here on earth. We don't need to keep washing ourselves because he has done it. And as I was writing this, I got goosebumps because this book, this book is no accident. Okay? And Jesus' death and resurrection is no afterthought. It was no plan B. And the history of the world didn't end up just coming to where we are. This is all by the power of God. This is all by the power of God so that we would see the glory of his son. So that we would come into a relationship and we would know utter joy. Because we know utter intimacy with him. Because we don't need to clean ourselves anymore. Because he has done it for us. Because he left his throne and he lived on earth. And he didn't live on earth as someone who is above us though he is above us, though he is our God and our King, he lived on earth as one of us to love us, to generously love us, to help us out when we run out of wine halfway through our wedding. That's the kind of Lord we serve. He saves us not only from embarrassment, but from eternal shame. He is our bridegroom. And he is the bridegroom that will never run out of wine, that will never run out of grace, that will never run out of love or mercy for his people. When we come to him, we come to him as a generous God. Not as a God that we're not sure if he's going to hit us on the head with a wooden spoon. He loves to give. So on to our last point as we close. This is all for his glory. Jesus comes into this situation and he blesses others. He owes them nothing, but he loves them. He doesn't do it to appease his mother. He does it because he loves them. And what does the Bible tell us in verse 11? tells us this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As he worked in power, people were drawn to him. They worked to bring glory to our Savior, and it points us to that moment of glory. His hour had not yet come, the cross, where he takes away our shame and mistakes and regrets. But this was his chance to show the kind of ministry he was going to have. One that would change the old into the new. The earthly would be made the heavenly. He would be the gate through which we came to our God. The disciples were in awe. The people were in awe. Everyone that knew were drawn to him. And his ministry continues, of course, filled with miracles, all showing how he replaces the old with the new, all showing the character of the one that would save us. 
And the most amazing thing is that we are his gift. You see, when we get to heaven, when we get to eternity, we are his gift, we are his bride. He gives this wine for us, to win us to himself. And our prize is living in the presence of God forever. I don't know what you think of heaven. You're told it's the most amazing thing. You think, oh, I don't know what that means, go-karting forever. It doesn't. It means sitting with Jesus forever. There's nothing more amazing than being in the presence of your God. When we're in worship and you feel the, sp- the spirit and you think, this is amazing. This is why I come to church, because I want to be with God. I want to have this. But when we're in heaven, that is what we have. There is no barrier. So what do we do with this story? Well, a couple of points. Firstly, we need to remember that our relationship with Jesus is a reason for joy. That's what this story tells us. Jesus loves joy. We're just like the ancient people. We load Christ's gift to us with burden. Joy becomes lost in the things we should be doing, the ways that we measure our righteousness. How many people have I helped? How many premiums have I been to? Have I been to youth recently? The list goes on, but we don't need these top-ups. We don't need this measure because Christ provides the measure and it is abundance. He's provided wine to overflowing. He's provided mercy that never fails. When we come to church, we don't need to wait to warm up because he is there. Because when we're at home before we come to church, he is there. Because when we were asleep, he was with us, keeping us breathing so that we would know his glory. He is not a burden or a taskmaster. He is a wonderful God. He wants us to enjoy this life. He wants us to look forward to the eternity to come. And secondly, there is no cause for embarrassment. I broke someone's tennis court. I didn't feel embarrassed. And when I come before Christ, I shouldn't feel embarrassed because he said, Cyril, look what I've done for you. Don't worry about your sin. You've repented. You've come to me. You've said sorry. How do I get you playing tennis again? How do I get you enjoying this life again? How do I get you walking in the abundance that I've provided for you again? Don't sit down and think you have to suffer for three weeks before you can be smiling again before me. I've died, so you don't have to wait for three weeks anymore, Cyril. Don't feel that burden. Don't feel the burden of your sin. Take it to Christ, give it to Christ, repent of it, and know immediately we are free to live in his joy, to live in his abundance. When you hear that voice, know it's the devil. I say, no, hang on, devil. Come with me to John chapter 2 and read him this story. His blood is more than enough. The old has gone, the new has come. I'm living in the abundance of my king. His blood flows through my veins and remakes my heart. He brings a total solution for our sin and encourages us into joy. So lastly, I just want to encourage you to learn this story, learn this gospel, not because it makes you a better Christian, but because it reminds you of who Jesus is. When we know him, we walk in such power and the devil shakes in his boots because he knows we know our God. He knows when he comes and he whispers his lies in our ears, we say, no, I know where to take you to to show you that you're wrong. And we live in a freedom that other people see and they think, what's what's with this person? It's because I know my savior. It's because you can't take me off course. It's because this truth reigns in my heart. Um, Let me just pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you are a wonderful God. Lord, there is no one like you and there will never be anyone like you.
And Lord, we're sorry that we don't fully understand how wonderful and magnificent you are. But we thank you that your Bible and your spirit work to show our hearts that there is no one like you. That you are so much better than everything we think you are, Lord. That your abundance can never run dry. Lord, teach our hearts how wonderful you are. Let us live with that spring in our step because your wine is in abundance. Your mercy never fails and your heart is for your people. Lord, we look forward to the day where we come to your wedding feast. Lord, keep our eyes, keep our eyes looking to you in your name. Amen.